Good afternoon, everybody. Hope your Wednesday's gone very, very well. I'm delighted to be joined by Cambridge United Sporting Director uh, Ben Strang. Um, ben, lovely to have you on the show, first of all. Thanks very much for, for your time. Um, I suppose that the first question would be just kind of reflecting on the last couple of years for Cambridge United because uh, so much has happened. You've uh, you won promotion from League Two in the lockdown season. You achieved highest ever finish for uh, 20, 25 years last season. And you've uh, you've um, had um, uh, you've you've bought the ground or, or made some massive steps towards that. So a, a lot to unpack there, I'm sure, in one answer. But you must feel really proud about what the football club has achieved over the last couple of years. Yeah, there's no question. It's been a really positive uh, couple of seasons from the club's perspective, and there's a lot of people that have contributed to that. I think you alluded to it at the end there with the Abbey purchase and the buyback of the stadium after 20 years. That you know, really significant moments. And a lot of that comes from the top down. So our ownership group of, of Paul Barry being the majority shareholder and uh, supported by Mark Green and, and Adam Webb. Um, it's been a really fantastic period that, that's been led by those guys. And um, obviously on the executive side, underneath the board level as well, just to try and deliver what has been delivered. Um, Mark's obviously led the, the team fantastically well, supported by a, a very capable coaching staff. And um, it's been a fantastic period, really, and, and one that I think all Cambridge United fans would have been delighted with and, and really felt attached to, because I think there has been a real attachment with them as well. And yeah, there, there's definitely a, an area of positivity that has existed at the football club for, for quite a period now. And it's it's just a pleasure to be in when it's in that sort of phase, because, you know, being honest, um, I've been in phases where it hasn't been like that as well. And, and you do sort of appreciate and recognise that moments when it is... More, more in sync with everything that you know how you hope for your football club to look yeah for sure um one thing that i'm really intrigued by ben is when you've got a football club in a town that's synonymous for for the university you, you would say cambridge um how do you uh, sort of build that connection with uh, with the city and uh, and get the city sort of really behind the football club and build those sorts of of links and and get the city promoting its football club and have that that unity has that been uh, would you say a challenge for you or one of the, the aspects of your work as a sporting director yeah, I think again, a club that is or a team that is successful and a team that is displaying signs and, and values that is synonymous and aligns with the fans is is obviously really helpful. But I think from a football perspective, other than trying to be as successful as you can be and trying to promote the best product on the pitch available, that's really all we can do from a football side. I think the club has done an enormous amount to try and integrate with different communities. Uh, we've got a uh, an SLO on, on our board in Dave Matthew Jones who does some brilliant work in that area and we get consistently very very good results on our fan engagement scoring and our fan experience scoring so yeah, I think that there are a lot of people that contribute to that you're right in saying that it's not a huge footballing city um, mm. and sometimes I think that can go in our favour sometimes that probably doesn't go in our favour but I think there is a, an air of patience a little bit more that, that we get whereas I think some grounds we go to with seem fairly brutal but it doesn't mean ours are any less passionate um, than others and we've got a really committed fan base here that again like I say have been really um, happy and engaged with this process in between but we, we want to try and grow the fan base we want to try and grow the club all the time and again going back to the Abbey purchase that is part of that desire to do that I know that Paul Barry has stipulated that obviously we've got one seated stand really and uh, well sorry other than the south stand which is 
it tends to be for the away fans, but out of our three home stands, we have seating really only in one. And in terms of the family experience for one of them, um, that's obviously not ideal for trying to promote the game to families. But then we look on the other side and I think a few people sort of say to us, we've got a bit of a unique experience at the yeah. Abbey, which you maybe don't sample in some others with the all-seater stadiums and there isn't that close feel to it. So I think when we're loud here and noisy, it's a, it's a brilliant place to be. And obviously we've had a brilliant start to the season with four wins from four at home. Um, obviously got Barnsley this Saturday that will definitely test that. But there's a good close feeling between the players and the staff and the, the fans at the moment. And as I say, we just want to continue to grow the club within the community, really. And, and how can we interact with different communities and get even more engagement and get even more support in the club? But it certainly does help when you've got a product that for the last couple of seasons has been attractive and, and easy to get on board with. Yeah, for sure. Do you think, um, I, I mean, I think it should be something that every football club looks to do to reach out to different communities, but especially in a city that I would imagine is quite multicultural like Cambridge because of the influx of people into the university. I would imagine that's a core element of of your attempts to an Ian Mather as, uh, in his role as well and, uh, and the sporting and the support liaison officer just in terms of building those links and making different communities feel like they're they're welcomed as part of the yellow and black army yeah definitely i think and you look at some clubs who are headlining that uh, that, that work you know blackburn rovers the work they've done with their local community from the muslim community has been sure. outstanding and yeah. something to really aspire to and, and that's an area that we're trying to grow as well because we've got a fantastic mosque just down the road from us literally on a doorstep and our engagement and interaction with them isn't where we'd like it to be. So we're trying to see if we can grow those relationships all the time and get it to a level where any community does feel comfortable and safe and happy coming to the Abbey. That's what we want to try and generate a, a place that everyone's really comfortable in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talk to me about the importance of um, creating a really good. You've talked about the culture and the, or the certainly the closeness between uh, Mark Bonner and the coaching staff and and the group. How have you fostered that? Because presumably there have been times you've been at Cambridge United for quite a long time. There may have been times where there wasn't necessarily that uh, that exact same sense of togetherness. So how do you as a football club try to cultivate that? And, and how have you been able to do that? I think a lot of the culture internally actually starts with your leader. And I think Mark in, in that sense does a fantastic job. It's quite a calm environment and potentially calmer than some other football environments I've seen where there is a, of course, there is a winning element to it. And Mark wants to win as much as any other coach, but I think there is a calmness and an emotional stability and awareness that allows him to not be too overreactive and, and similarly not to get too high. So when people are saying, what start Cambridge have had their fifth in the league, I think everyone realises we're seven games in when we were fifth and dropped down to sixth now, obviously, after eight. But I think there is that more holistic sort of plan. I know that sounds like a bit of a buzzword, but it's not just result at the end of the day. It is what are the players experiencing Monday to Friday. How are we improving them? How are we developing them? How are we working to try and improve individually and collectively? And that's been really rewarding to see the benefits of that because I think you can look through a lot of the squad and see quite a tangible progress within the group. Um which from my perspective is really, really um, important, but also fantastic as a sales pitch for me, because 
you know, players can come here, enjoy the environment, enjoy working with the coaching staff, enjoy living, if not in a beautiful city, very close to a beautiful city. And, and everyone sort of, in the last couple of seasons, I would say pretty much without exception, been in that situation where they've enjoyed the environment and they've enjoyed the working group that we've got here. So I think there is an element of enjoyment in the group. And I think, again, that comes from the calm environment that Mark and his coaching staff are able to implement. And I don't think that happens overnight, but I think it's just consistent behaviours that enable players to feel comfortable being there and, and to be themselves. I think there's also a culture we've got that exists that there are very, very few egos or no egos really, both from a coaching staff perspective and from the players' perspective. And I think if that were to exist, I think that would get quashed fairly quickly by the group because the strength of the group um, would probably not allow that, I would like to think. Hmm. And again, that can come down to recruitment as well in terms of trying to make sure that you don't make any mistakes, if you like, in terms of cultural fit and try and get people that are aligned to your values and way of working. We've, we see plenty of players that are talented players that we like, but just don't quite feel that they'd be the right fit for us. So you've got to be quite selective with that as well. But I think that cultural side to us is, is important because I think when we got promoted, I wouldn't have probably said we were the second most talented squad in the league, but we had an understanding, a commitment um, and a desire to to work collectively where no player felt that they were bigger than the team, even though one of them scored 32 goals. Um, and I think actually that was helped in part by the fact that we had Wes Houlihan, who, who was an unbelievable professional with zero yeah. ego, who had had a significant career. And if there was anyone who could have sort of been allowed an ego, it was him and, and he didn't have one at all. So it made it very difficult, therefore, for anyone else to have an ego when Wes was one of the most down-to-earth people you've come across. So I think it's sort of been established and I think it's grown and, and it's just sort of become our way and then it makes it easier to bed people into that process because people know what we are and what we're about. So I think that's evolved over time. But I think one of the things I would say that in terms of how I would describe that environment is a very, very calm, stable uh, and emotionally stable environment. Yeah, I mean, just listening to you there, Ben, it strikes me that I think the, the, the two sort of key aspects of culture setting is firstly, you've alluded to it, they're having a leader that sort of um, epitomises it and exemplifies it and, and sort of sets it and then I suppose from there you'd, you'd want one or two like uh, like Wes Houlihan who who have that ability and don't don't take that as a buyout to to sort of have an ego still buy into the cause. Um, but also I think the other thing is is recruitment and I think if you bring in the right characters then maybe you need to do less in terms of culture setting in terms of pointing things out in terms of uh, and telling people off and this that and the other because it's like you have then cr can create a group that just self-manages i suppose yeah I, I agree with that and i think um i was working here so i first came to the club full-time basis the 2011-12 season so i've had quite a period here albeit there was a, a two-year period in in the middle where I worked for Norwich City as head of academy recruitment. And I found that quite interesting to work in an academy recruitment dynamic. And I've worked with several people who I would see as real experts in that area that might not have been able to transition. And maybe you could argue I didn't transition as well into the academy side as, as I might have done, um, even though we had some success. But what I liked building rather than just focusing on, a, on an individual and assessing and highlighting an individual is building a squad and building a group and trying to find a 
group of players that have a chemistry that exists between them. Because I think when you're trying to do that, you're trying to think of a, a more wide ranging set of criteria rather than just right. Can this can X player do this, this, and this to be able to play for us? How will he fit in with that? How will the relationship be like with that as a centre half? How will he be in that back four with that full back on the outside of him and a centre half next to him and a goalkeeper of our real kind of central midfielder of our real in front of them? How how do they fit into that greater team rather than just is that individual a good player? Yes, okay. Can we scratch you know, further than that, really? <laughs> yeah. So I've, in, I've enjoyed that perspective from a recruitment perspective. And I think we, we try to do as much work as we can on the character side of players without obviously having too much resource that we can't go to the depths of private investigators that the Premier League clubs would to try and get a real picture of a player. But we try to get as much of a feeling with them, again, in a very calm environment when Mark and I would meet them you know, any potential signings and, and trying to get a real understanding and feeling of them and how they'd fit into the group. And sometimes, like I say, there will be certain players that we don't think will fit in and we'll move on from that because we have to be, be comfortable that they come into the group, fit into the group and will contribute to the group effectively. Yeah, for sure. Um, you've mentioned a few times there, Ben, the importance of creating a calm and collective environment, which obviously Mark Bonner sort of sets and, and other people follow that. Um, it's very interesting because um, you, you also mentioned that you did some work at Norwich City. And if I think of Norwich when they won back-to-back promotions under Paul Lambert, you wouldn't have described it as a calm culture. You'd have said they had lots of loud characters like, uh, you know, your Stephen Whitakers, your Grant Holtz, uh, I'm sure that uh, Russ Martins, lots of very vocal characters, I suppose, that um, that uh, would, would kind of have a go at each other at times. And I, I just wonder whether the ideal footballing culture or the perception of it over the last 10 years has changed a little bit and gone from the shouty shouty sort of types over to more of a measured collected types and you know is, is that a trend that we're starting to see yeah I, I would definitely not disagree with that in terms of the the modern player and how the modern player wants to be spoken to how they see themselves within that group dynamic so I think there has been a change. And I think if you look at the number of young coaches that are now working in the game and the proportion of younger coaches that are working in the game that might have academy backgrounds, which obviously Mark does, I don't think that's a coincidence, really. Um, I'm not saying that old school can't be successful because there's plenty of examples of it. I just think for us it works. But I'm, I'm conscious also to state that when you're describing that environment, that it doesn't mean that we're soft and we don't want to win and we won't call out behaviours and actions. We absolutely have to do that. But what I do mean by it is we played Cheltenham on Tuesday night. It's our worst performance of the season. We weren't very good, albeit they were good. Um, but there's no overreaction to that. There's a, a measured reaction to it. It's not going to be that we're going to throw the baby out the bathwater because of it. It's trying to have an understanding of why that is, but also not to derail us too much in a grand scheme of 46 games in a season. We've played one poor game in my opinion, probably out of eight. I think we've been fairly competitive in all of the other seven. Um, mm. So I think it's more that element that we're not too overreactive to any element, both positive or negative. It's more of a wider view and, and how we're going to sort of measure things as we go along rather than be knee-jerk and, and reactive. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, just another on another point about uh, creating these sorts of environments, because it's a topic that really interests me. How important a role would you say Paul Digby has played in terms of uh, sort of leading by example? Um, there was one or two, two times. Um, I mean, I agree with you. I was at the game on Tuesday night, and I did. I did. I, yeah, it was a little bit below what I would have expected from Cambridge United, but I thought some of the work against the ball in the first half was really strong. And I look at Paul Digby. He's an anchor man by trade but there's one or two times where he'd go and and sort of trigger the press if if needed and then there's another time where he you know one of the I think George Williams got forward and he kind of covered the gaps and it feels to me like he's one that really sets the tone in the group and um and sort of I suppose expects the same standards from from everyone else so would you look at him as one of the cluster of characters that you've been able to build this uh, this ethos around? Yeah, I would. And I think, you know, in terms of the louder characters, the more demanding characters, he's certainly in that group. We have quieter mm. characters. Probably if you if you had 11 Paul Digby's that do each other's head in, um, <laughs> but if you had none of them, you might fall into the category of, like, say, being a little bit soft and that soft underbelly. So I think, you know, players like him that have sort of formed that part of the culture has meant that we haven't been seen as a soft touch, actually. I think most would say we're fairly tough, awkward, difficult to play against. Um, because of those type of characteristics that we do possess and, and diggers exactly that. You know, he really drives the team on and um, he's a fantastic professional who, again, I would say exemplifies the fact that would never see himself as bigger than the team and, and understands his role fully within that structure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of my beliefs, Ben, is that... Um, I think for, for much of football's existence, the role of a manager has been someone who oversees the whole operation of the football club, the, all the recruitment, and uh, takes charge of training and picks the team and runs runs the games. And I think that one of the trends we're seeing now is that there's a sort of a separating off of some of those roles where we're seeing, um, and I think in, in the EFL, we've seen great examples of sporting directors, directors of football or head of football operations, similar role, different titles. Um, I think you've been certainly outstanding from, uh, from, from that perspective at Cambridge United. And I think that uh, maybe in a few years' time, Time, the role of a sporting director or equivalent will be as sought after as a head coach or, or as a manager because of the the, the sort of the strategy uh, that's uh, that's required and how that can sort of take some of the the weight off the the head coach or, or the manager. Is that something that is that the way you see it? Yeah, I do. I, th I think even in the period that I've done it, so I've been in October, I've been back six years in the role where, as you said, came in as head of football operations, which then became sporting director later on. Um, but I would certainly see that as a benefit of the role and, and someone in this position that can take a more holistic view of um, the football operation. I, I must say in terms of Mark, he's an absolute workhorse, so he will get involved in a lot of aspects as well. But there's probably conversations that I can keep him out of that he doesn't need to be aware of. And, you know, things like the academy, things like the women's team, things like, you know, the progression of the sports science and medical department, how that all looks, that I can have a focus on those areas more so than than just the, fir the first thing. But like I say, I wouldn't sort of tarnish Mark with that brush that he's only interested in the first team. And, and I realise that's quite a unique position in that the affinity and the connection that Mark's got with this football club, you can't manufacture that, you can't fabricate that, that if you're a fan growing up of the club, you do have a special affinity with the club. So whenever Mark wanna moves on from Cambridge United, it will be really difficult to get 
his successor to um, to have that same affinity with the club. And I, I do realise, like I say, that that's quite a unique position that we find ourselves in. And I think when you talk about the connection with the fans as well, that has really helped because he knows how significant different bits are, like the Abbey sale. You know, he worked here when the club was sold uh, initially and, and, and was around it and, and remembers that period and the implications of that. So someone who has a, a really well-formed um, regard and, and experience of the club is really helpful. But I, I do think um, this role in particular can can carry uh, a massive benefit and, and be of real good value to, to a head coach or manager position. There, there has to be a short-term view with a head coach or manager, even though they might want to have a, a longer-term view as well and, and be what they're working towards, which I think is helpful to have that. Ultimately, they are judged on results, Saturdays and Tuesdays. And that's not what really I'm judged on, in, in fairness, mine is over a, a long-term period and how I can help and progress the football operation on in this in this side. And we're growing all the time as a, as a club. You know, like I say, when I joined here, we were struggling in the National League. And I remember how close we came at times to the abyss, as it seemed at the time, from relegation from that league. And, and I've been on a fair bit of that journey. I was here when we got promoted from the National League into League Two. And I was here when we got promoted from League Two into League One. And in terms of growing the club, and that's a big part of the Abbey purchase, is what this will enable us to do now in terms of future proof in the club and future proof in the stadium and being able to invest to modernise it and, and improve it. All of those different aspects, we have to try and keep the club moving in line with it. And that's not always easy because I think you've referenced it before, Go. I think it was maybe a bit of a surprise that we got promoted when we did. I don't think there was an expectation in the season to get promoted. But I think I said mid table before, lower mid table at the time. So it was a bit of a surprise. I didn't see it coming at all. I, I think that was generous, to be honest, because I don't think anyone <laughs> that either. But because of that and, and that evolution of the club, you've got to try and keep the rest of the, the club in, in line with that. And it's not always easy because that requires significant resource. I mean, you know, four and a half million is, is capital that's gone into the club to help that funding of the purchase of the stadium so it does require money um and but we've just got to try and get there but that, i would say in terms of the strategy and where we want to go to at the moment we need to become a stable league one football club because i think it's a very good natural level for us uh, to be competing within and against some really huge teams it's a fantastic test for us to compete against the likes of ipswich and derby and um Charlton and Portsmouth, whoever else, you know, within the league, there's some huge clubs and, and that's been brilliant for us from the promotion from League Two to League One. It's, I think it's been fairly significant, the uh, increase in demands on the group and, and the improvement uh, across a, a number of different areas, as well as just some of the stadiums that you're playing in front of and those atmospheres. So the club needs to grow and, and we need to get it towards that way. And, and again, that's where I feel like I can help and benefit the rest of the club with the board, with Alex Tunbridge, our new CEO, who came in this summer, uh, and with the ownership model to try and progress the club. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and certainly uh, a lot of progression in uh, in recent years. So all credit to, to the group for that. And um, I, I think the one thing that I'm really curious about Ben is when it comes to a manager or a head coach. For me, as an outsider, um, I know I have a pretty good idea of what their day to day roles and responsibilities are going to be. When it comes to a sporting director, it's a little bit more 
um, a little bit more opaque, I suppose, from an outside perspective. So what I'd be really interested in, is there a typical day for Ben Strang as, as Cambridge United Sporting Director, or does it completely vary depending on what comes up on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I would say it's uh, less standardised than that of a head coach and manager. I think because you're trying to deal with different aspects of the club. So in the last couple of weeks, I'll have been covering everything from a first-team perspective on arrangements on the first team, recruitment-wise, what we're looking for, um, looking at the window ahead, looking at contract renewals, bits like that, conversations with Mark, who I speak to multiple times a day, the coaching staff and building the coaching staff and support staff around him, in which we've had to do a little bit of this season because we've lost a couple of um, staff members and had to replace them. Then working closely with Dom Knight and the academy manager and, and all of his staff that he oversees, as well as issues that might come up with food, digs, all of those bits, which always seem to be on the agenda whenever you're uh, at working at a football club. It seems to be the same wherever you go, that those things will always come up. Um, as well as uh, the women team have been uh, integrated into the football club as of this season. So working closely with with the board um, within that setup, as well as uh, Darren Marjoram, the manager there, and trying to have a bit of input into that as well and trying to sort of shape where we're going with it because it's an area that we do want to really develop and evolve. Um, so I think across so many different areas, there are so many aspects that can make up the role. And uh, I was having this conversation, I travelled to Cheltenham with um, Alex on Tuesday, our CEO, and I was just saying it just can drive you mad at times that you think your to-do list is checked off, your emails are cleared. You go on a two-hour drive to Cheltenham and by the time you've got there, you've got another 30 emails and another six things that have come up that are immediately actionable. So, yeah, I think it can look quite different, but I quite enjoy that variety to it and how different everything can look. Um, Because of my background as well, in terms of recruitment, I still go to games, not as many games as I did, but I like to have an awareness of targets, awareness of different levels and and different leagues. And, And... really be as well formed as I can be from the outside rather than just internal as well. Yeah, no, that's so interesting, that that sense of having uh, the, the 30 emails in two hours type thing, because I, I'm always really interested if you could kind of character profile the ideal sporting director. Would you describe yourself as a perfectionist where if you're doing one individual task, you think I've got to get this absolutely right, nailed down, I can't focus on anything else until I've got this right? Or you a little bit more of a broad brush where you've kind of you've got to sort of take yourself out of it a little bit more and look at things on more of an overall um, kind of level. I'm really curious about that side of things. I can only speak from my personal perspective and and history doing this role, but I think sometimes if you try to get too involved in the detail within the different departments, there's no point in having heads of departments. So the specialists in the medical areas, the specialists in the sports science areas, I would lean on them heavily whenever something, you know, apparent comes up and relevant in that particular area. I'd like to know sort of the key thinkings from it and what are the next steps and what are the ideas that we've got or what are the decisions we need to make and, and be able to form that. But I think if you try and get, again, only from my perspective, if you try and get in amongst all of the detail too often, that can be really difficult. Um, and then there are some things which need dealing with immediately, obviously, and there are some things that are just too big instances to take in a short frame of time. And we have to set a different time scale to say, okay, over the next month, we're going to be looking at this, we'll meet to review it, we'll have meetings with that person, that person, that person, involve more people as we go along. And, and there'll be a different methodology of working through challenges or issues that might come up. But yeah, I, I certainly like to think that 
within the football side of it, um, we've got specialists in those areas. We've got highly credible, capable staff mm. who, like I say, are experts in that field. And, and who am I to judge what we're doing from a sports science point of view when you've got Lawrence Bloom who's come in this summer and, and Matt Walker prior to him that have got the experience and, and knowledge and expertise that they have in that area. No, that, that does make a lot of sense. So it's kind of a case of overseeing everything and just kind of ticking, making sure everything's on track and everything's running smoothly. That I think that I think in a way that's an art in in itself. Um, so yeah, I can see how that's incredibly uh, important. And I suppose the other thing that I'm really interested in, Ben, is um, what you've talked about contract renewals. And the one thing that really interests me about that is it's partly a financial decision. So presumably you have to liaise with uh, with the CEO, uh, Alex, and but also it's a footballing decision. So you've got to liaise with with Mark. Is it a case of kind of compromising those two ideals? Because Mark's going to need some insight on the financial side of things and where the club is on a budget perspective in order to make a decision on uh, how much the club is prepared to offer a player. But on the other hand, uh, Alex is going to need some insight on Mark on how high a potential a player that is going to have and I imagine that you feel you see your role is to kind of be at the centre of, of those kind of discussions. Yeah I think from my perspective I'm, I'm quite fortunate in that and again from a, just a personal experience at this club we have a football budget to spend within the first team group and I'm sort of let to lead on that and carry on with that and, and negotiate how I would seem suitable. I might at times ask for a bit of input from the likes of Alex or from Paul. But we've got a fairly, I would say, a fairly rigid structure. So we know what we're working with. We know what we can't do. We know that there are conversations that I can rule out quite quickly, which actually is quite helpful sometimes. Naturally, I think everyone sort of always thinks, oh, it'd be nice to have a bit more money there to do that and do that. But one thing I would say is we definitely know what we've got to spend and we know what we can't go over. And therefore, like I say, it makes conversations at times uh, with agents fairly straightforward of, you know, I had it in the summer on a couple of occasions where there were players that we'd identified and I sort of said, this is our cap, this is what we don't pay over. And I probably got laughed out of the room by a couple. Um, but at least but I know that's where okay, I stand. Isn't it? Because yeah, exactly. you're holding to your what your position is. I think the problem that's is it. when you get pulled this way, that way and the other way, just because you want to try and fit in or look like... So I, th I think it's really important that regardless of how it's perceived, you're able to stick to your position and say, this is what we can offer. Exactly that. And it also makes it a little bit easier, in, in all honesty, in terms of the management of the group, because... I think there's a bit of an awareness on what our pay structure looks like within the group and there isn't a massive disparity between any of them. So hmm. it, it eliminates the problem of having someone who earns a 20th of what someone else is within the group. So I, from like I say, from my perspective, even though sometimes you can have the feeling of it'd be nice to have that and be able to offer that, I'm really comfortable in knowing that this is what we've got. If we can sign you within this, then we'll have a conversation. If we can't, then we won't. We'll move on, we'll move on to the next one on the list. Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose a key challenge for Cambridge United, and we've talked a little bit about uh, the financial aspect and, and the importance of clarity and what the club can spend. Um, it's obviously been... Um, uh, it's brought some challenges, I suppose, because although buying the ground is, is great, that obviously has an impact on what the immediate budget is. So do you see it as a key priority for Cambridge United now to look at, for instance, uh, Timmy Adusina 
or uh, Harvey Nibs in terms of the long-term potential that they've got, try and produce some more players like that that could be worth um, a million or two or a bit, you know, a bit of money from add-ons and sell-ons and things like that at this stage of the club's trajectory. Well, Timmy, I'd have say no. I worked with at Norwich, but I don't work with here. So I oh, he's. Um, <laughs> I can't come on in. Do you have real no, like, Yeah, I take I'm your so point. Sorry, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and yeah, it has to be a part of our model that we have to work towards. And ultimately, I think anyone who would say that they aren't a selling club, if you like, at this level, I'd question that really, um, because pretty much everybody has a point at which they'll agree to think that a deal was suitable for the club. So yeah, we want to have some um, asset value within the group for sure. Um, and it's something that we probably want to do more of as well. I think, you know, when we got out of League Two, to be honest, we signed a lot of players on one-year deals in a very, very challenging market in an absolute period of uncertainty. But a lot of players between sort of 24, 27, which we viewed as their prime, plenty of Football League appearances behind them, you know, really established men like Big B, like Joe Ironside and the likes. And because of the pay structure we have, it makes it really difficult then to get 24 to 27 year olds with really decent number of League One minutes behind them. So then it has to alter a little bit. And that's why I would always say in terms of strategies, I think from my perspective, working at a club like this, you do have to be a little bit flexible because to say we're only going to do this and this only, I think you're probably missing the trick. I might be wrong in saying that, but I think you have to be open to different ways and, and of working. And I think adding the, the likes of the players, like say Harvey Nibs, Dribble Ocadina, Shiloh Tracy that we've taken from some of the bigger clubs um, and almost giving them a home here and a platform. I think that's really important for us and, and it definitely does help drive asset value, which like I say, yeah, it is a aspiration of ours to, to work towards that, that clubs look at us from higher up the food chain and think Cambridge United have got some good young players that we'd want to try and deal with them on. Um, I look down the road at the job that Liam Sweet and the coaching staff have done at MK Dons, I think they've done it terrifically and that is a model that you look at at the moment and you, you can't help but think that would be a really nice model to, to follow and uh, adopt. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that seems really important that you can uh, you can produce those sorts of of players and and then reinvest and hopefully Cambridge can can find that sort of uh, model and certainly well on your, your way at the moment. Um, you mentioned one year contracts there, and this is um something I'm fascinated in in terms of football strategy, Ben, because um I'm always very mindful of the fact that I don't work I've never worked at a football club so it's one thing for me to say something from the outside but it's very different for to actually do it when you're faced with the realities of, of running a football club um but I'm not sure I'm ready to agree with the concept of one-year contracts just because I feel like it's a little bit halfway house and I suppose that if I was in a position of offering contracts, I would either wholeheartedly commit to a footballer and say, we'll give you two years plus uh, or or release them. Um, but I'm aware also that sometimes for veterans where you, you're not necessarily quite sure what level they'll be at in 12 years time, it can make sense. So what's your sort of stance on, on one year contracts? Yeah, well, that summer in particular, the summer of the 2021 season, I think was unique and we gave one year deals pretty much across the board because it was in that summer of COVID and, and sure. the uncertainty. So we were forced into doing that. And, and actually, because of the success we had in that season, it made it a bit of a challenge because we therefore lacked contractual protection on the players. 
I would say standard for us fairly is, is two years, uh, but it's an interesting point that you raise because, again, from a contractual perspective, and again, with we're in that moment now where we found it of quite a lot of our players signed two-year deals last last season, and we've got quite a few out of contract this summer. So you are in a weaker position, unfortunately. Um, but on the flip side of that, if you were to detail on a, for argument's sake, a three-year contract in which we've signed some players on three-year contracts this summer, and we're trying to build more towards that and have a bit more longevity and contractual protection for players. But if you look at a three-year deal and the amounts that those players will be earning on basic wage, any appearances, any bonuses, relocation, if that's applicable, agent fees, and you look at that as if, I think it's sometimes easy to say a player is earning X thousand a week, to then put it, break it down and say our financial commitment to this player is three years' worth of this salary and all these associated costs, sometimes that can be quite a significant decision to make and, and we do try and keep that in line as well because I think like I say certainly in this industry the way that money gets spoken about sometimes is a little bit flippantly and really in terms of understanding and appreciating the value and the commitment that the club is making to that individual is is sometimes far more significant than probably it's uh, is communicated really so now, I, I do agree, wherever possible, we don't really want to do one-year contracts and it's, it's special cases. Like you say, we do have a bit of a policy of when a player gets over a certain age that we didn't, wouldn't commit so much longer term. Um, but in terms of the player feeling wanted, being able to settle into the club, I think it's beneficial to be committing longer than one year. Yeah, for sure. Um, talking of committing to players, I want to ask you about uh, progression plans, Ben, because um, I, I, I think I'm right in saying the club doesn't have um, an under-23s uh, development squad, which is totally understandable because obviously it's difficult for most clubs at this level and obviously you've had your, your investment in the stadium, so uh, totally understand that. But um, I think possibly one of the impacts of that is that it means you do then rely very heavily on the loan system in terms of giving your Mama G Jobs and your Kai Yearns those opportunities to uh, to develop at um, your Concord Rangers and your um, your Chelmsford's sort of local non-league clubs. Um, I can totally see how that's very beneficial in terms of getting an experience of, uh, of men's football. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder whether players can develop quickly enough to get up to League One level via those series of, of non-league loans. Yeah, it's without doubt one of the most challenging aspects to this role in terms of overseeing the academy element to it and the developmental side of our young professional players and establishing a pathway, establishing what a model looks like. And it can look very, very different from player to player. And that's the thing, there's never a one size fits all. And you look at players who are playing at any level in the senior game, that, that would be apparent with quite a few. It is a challenge, however, I do think with the 21s, but I think, you know, I speak to some people that work within the 21 setup and they have their frustrations with that. I think it just naturally will always be the case when you're working with so many academy players into 18s that you've still got a group of 18 scholars. To then try and whittle that amount of people down to a development pathway that can get into your first team and establish themselves into the first team. I think this senior... Uh, and competitive environment that our players benefit from going into those levels is is really significant and really helps us with that. And I think, you know, we've got a really close tie up with uh, St. Town as a, as a local non-league club with us who are playing at step four. And, and that is a challenge that, again, 
even if they're excelling with St. Neitz, is okay, we're still significant steps behind where the first team is at the moment. So how do you get them ready for the first team? And some players come in because out of a, an opportunity that arises that no one had seen coming. And sometimes they don't get an opportunity where a lot of staff, and particularly from an academy perspective, will feel that they're deserving of that opportunity. So it's one of the most challenging and complex details to try and navigate and try and make sure that we get right. But it's something that we were constantly reviewing to say, how can we do it better? How can we get more minutes uh, from academy products in the first team? And how can, because I think the, uh, the credibility of our academy and the reputation is very, very strong, particularly up to 16s, where again, because of um, EPPP and the impacts of that, we've lost a few players before 16, which we're, we're sort of open to because you have to be, you know that you can get picked off for some of your better players. And as long as you're dealt with in a respectful way and, and the approaching club deals with you in the right way and you get a good deal out on the back of that, then... May I ask, Ben, if you've been happy with the sell-on values and, and percentages and things like that that you've had in those scenarios? Or do you feel you've been a little bit shortchanged in certain cases? No, I think generally, again, I think it causes debate because if you were to speak to Exeter, who have a terrific youth scheme, I think they would probably have a different stance on that. But I can only speak from our side of it. We, um, we have decent relationships with some of the players that would come and target our younger players. And um, I think most are really quite fair in their, their dealings with us. So, you know, that is one model that we could have in an academy that has really good young players and, and ends up getting some massive value for, for the younger players and, and the other tangible outcome is to try and get in the first team and like I say we need to do more of that and better with that but it's assessing how we do that um, I think Liam Bennett's a really good example for us at the moment um, on a League 2 loan and, and in a really good place at the moment that being only one step below us at the moment that's a really strong position for us to be in so if we can try and raise our levels to get players of the calibre of Liam um, that can go into loans similar to that I think that really helps bridge the gap. Um, so we were really pleased with that in the summer. And um, he's obviously, he seems like he's sort of playing his way in at Warsaw and, and performing well there. So we're happy with that. But we need to try and form more of those sort of pathways if we can for players whilst we don't have the 21s in, in place at the moment. Yeah, that uh, and hope for hopefully more players can uh, can follow in um, in Liam's footsteps. So in that sense, and hopefully Liam can, can sort of make his way into this Cambridge team. Um, I'm really intrigued to get your sense on uh, what's the long-term ambition for Cambridge United because when you get to League One level, it felt like a bit of a split league last season where if you're not a big-budgeted club, you can have a great season and still only the benchmark is mid-table. I think it was the case for, for Cheltenham Town last year as well. So I think maybe someone with a certain mindset would probably say we're in danger of hitting a, a glass ceiling, if you like. But I'm sure with, with Cambridge United, you're thinking, on the one hand, we want to be pragmatic and make sure that we get 50 points first and foremost. But at the same time, you want to be competitive and try and win every game you play. Absolutely. And I think when I say about the growth of the club on and off the pitch in, in that longer term period, that's really vital because there's no point in us trying to progress as a football club in terms of the team and standing still in any area of the club. We have to try and progress everything to put us in the best position that we can, can be become more and more competitive. Um, I, I agree with you, last season was almost a table of two tables. I think probably Plymouth were the real outliers on a positive sense to that, that 
they massively outperformed their budget. But other than that, the top half was probably fairly consistent with the top half. Maybe the positions that people finished was, you know, people have overperformed or underperformed. But I think Plymouth were the real outliers last year in League One. And I think it is a challenge because I talk about the size of some of those clubs, the resources they have, the, the fan bases and stadiums that some of them have. Naturally, there is going to be a golf in finance and resources available to you. So I think it's a challenging league from that perspective to have too many that, you know, can really surprise and shock anyone that, you know, like Burton did a few years ago, get into the championship. I think that's, um, it, it wasn't a, a common trend and I don't think it will become a common trend, but we just have I to. Think the, I think the standard of League One is very different to what it was when Burton were able to reach the championship. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like former Premier League clubs, that have fallen down a little bit over time and, and now trying to re-establish themselves, you know, going to Sunderland last year, playing Sheffield Wednesday last year. They are some huge clubs. But I think we can only really focus on ourselves and, and continue to try and improve the club uh, from a football perspective, from a commercial perspective, from a fan base perspective. If we can continue to grow that in every area, we'll give ourselves the best chance of doing it. But like I say, the, the important thing for me is that we don't stand still and that we have ambition because I think the ones who lack ambition and think, oh, we'll just keep doing what we're doing here at the moment. Nine times out of ten, you might keep doing it for a little period, but eventually that will drop off and you'll return to your natural level. So I think this is a really good opportunity for us, actually, and it's a really exciting one that we've got to try and drive the club on and try and almost maximise the momentum that we're experiencing at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, talk to me about uh, Mark Bonner, Ben, and you, you've mentioned him at the, the beginning of our conversation when you talked about uh, his calm and collected sort of leadership. And I think at times he's almost had to separate himself from the emotion of being a boyhood Cambridge United fan and more sort of focus on the professional element, which is a, probably a sacrifice you've you've got to make at times, um, while still obviously caring for the, for the club hugely. Um, I suppose the, the interesting thing from my perspective would be that um, you've been on a similar journey to Cheltenham Town over the last couple of years and Michael Duff for lots of that period was linked with a lot of championship clubs he ended up going to to Barnsley there weren't I wouldn't say Mark Bonner was as often linked with uh, with championship jobs when they uh, came up and obviously it probably isn't in your interest to uh, talk Mark Bonner up for, for a championship job but I suppose I'm, I'm curious about how far you think he can go as a manager with or or or, or just generally uh, with Cambridge United or just generally. Yeah I think he's done an excellent job here um, and we're really pleased to have him you know the, pro the progress that the club and the team and the players have made with him and, and the rest of the coaching staff as well is outstanding. Um, ultimately, if you're doing well, there will naturally be moments where that attracts interest from elsewhere. But I agree, I, I don't think he was sort of linked as publicly with um, with jobs as Michael was, whether or not that has anything to do with playing backgrounds and Michael played in the Premier League. Maybe, maybe he's a bit more of a name and, you know, different people can have different um, perceptions on how important that is because uh, I think, you know, the next level of championship, there is an element of that where people might want a, a bit of a name at times. But I think he's done a very, very good job. He's obviously still very young in his managerial career. He's not young in his coaching career because he's been coaching for a, a significant period of time. But in terms of leading a first-team group, this is uh, still in the infancy of his uh, of his career. And I'm sure he'll go on to have a, a long and, uh, and really decent 
career as a manager and as a first team head coach. So now, whilst whilst we are as we are, and I think the big thing to say for Mark as well is I think he does feel aligned to the, the club, and, and whilst we're trying to grow the club again, uh, I know I keep referring to that, but that's important because if you if you're standing still, then it's a less attractive environment to be in, a less uh, attractive club to be attached to. Whereas we're constantly looking at okay, how can we improve the stadium? But okay, how can we improve the training ground and bits around the stadium as well? You know, investment into the pitches at the training ground, and hopefully investment into the uh, training ground buildings this summer, as long as we can get planning approved for that. So, you know, there's so many different aspects where I think because of his connection to it, and I, and I think he would argue that he finds it very, very easy to differentiate between fan and, and head coach because of that emotionless element to being a head coach um, but I think whilst he sees that the club is evolving and, and on an upward trajectory he's really keen to be part of that and there's no real need for him to be to be looking elsewhere yeah absolutely and it's certainly a special club to be part of Cambridge United right now and I think that's testament to Mark it's testament to yourself uh, testament to lots of people behind the scenes and it's great to see the club uh, on an upward uh, trajectory and hopefully um, the club can uh, can push even further this season but um, it's been so lovely to, to pick your brains Ben uh, this afternoon and uh, and thanks a lot for joining us no problem at all thanks for your time Gab really appreciate it Cheers, Ben. This has been EFL Debate. I'll see you again next time.